You are listening to The 66, a podcast that takes you through the entire Bible one book at a time. Uh, We have covered two books so far, Ezra and Nehemiah, and now we are heading into our third, Esther, and all three of them are related along the theme of restoration. In Ezra, just by way of review, in Ezra, we talked about the restoration of worship and the restoration of the law. Nehemiah was about the restoration of the city, the city of Jerusalem. And now we're getting to Esther, which doesn't fall chronologically behind these two books. It really fits right in the middle of them before the book of Nehemiah and halfway through the book of Ezra. But it's about, it it thematically sits well at the end of these two because it's about the restoration of honor. You can have your worship in place, you can have your uh, law in place, you can have your city in place, but you may not be able to still hold your head up high. And that's what the book of Esther is about, and that's how we're going to look at it as we go over the next, uh, I think we're going to try to do this in four episodes mm-hmm. and conclude this uh, trilogy, if you want to give it a, you know, this really... Yeah sophisticated sounding uh, name for what we're doing here, the trilogy of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Everybody looks at these three books together, particularly Ezra and Nehemiah, but Esther fits in there as well because all three of them fall into the same period of Bible history, which is right at the end, really, of Old Testament history. Uh, You've got the last three prophetic books, or the last prophetic book of Malachi, uh, dates later than these, but aside from that one, these are the latest dated books, and uh, they they are the last books of history mm-hmm. that we have. So this is, in the timeline of the Old Testament, this is like the last thing that we're going to... It's the end of the story. Out. Okay. Yeah. And, and then you have the 400-year silent period between the Testaments, and then Jesus is born. So okay. uh, I heard somebody, and I'll throw this in now, and I really should have thought about it before I started speaking, so I may have the math wrong, but... Um, Somebody told me that you could remember the Old Testament this way. The first 17 books are the history of the the Jews. The history of the entire history of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. First 17 books. And then, uh, so that's the five books of the Pentateuch. And then, are there 12 books of history? Am I getting this right? Yeah, I think so. And then uh, the next, so that gets your whole history. When you get to Esther, you have concluded the history of the Old Testament. Now, you hadn't gotten halfway through the Old Testament in terms of the table of contents, but you are you are done with the history. Then it backs up. When you get to Job, which falls after Esther in the table of contents, you've got five books there that give you the exper- individual experiences within that history. Mm-hmm. So Job, you know, he, he falls in there before Abraham. And you get a sense of what life was like in the patriarchal age for that particular person. In the Psalms, you have David's experiences. You have the experiences of other Israelites. In Proverbs, you have the experiences of Solomon. Same goes for Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. So those five books are about individual experiences within the first 17 And then the last 17, which would be the major and minor prophets, that gives you the divine commentary on the uh, history of the Jews. So again, 
they're not getting into new territory, except, like I said, Malachi does fall after this, and it's not historical, so you really don't get a whole lot of events and ideas. You just get that divine commentary, but that's uh, God commenting on all the things that happen throughout those 70 books of history. So we're looking at the end of the Old Testament, historically speaking, right here mm-hmm. in the book of Esther. Another thing about the book of Esther is it's the only book of the Bible that does not mention the name of God. You know, from the first chapter to the end, you don't read um, the name of God at all. And evidently that was embarrassing to some Jews because there is an apocryphal book, meaning a non-inspired book, that has been added to the canon, not officially, but some have tried to add it to the canon, called Additions to Esther. And in additions to Esther, you have the name of God through it all the way. And uh, that really is unnecessary, but that shows some of the embarrassment on the part of some that the name of God doesn't appear here. And there are some perfectly good reasons why the name of God is not in here. Uh, one is, you know, maybe the, those who wrote it were afraid to put Yahweh in there uh, because they were living in Persian captivity. And it could have been very dangerous for them to do it. Much like the book of Revelation is written in code because it was very dangerous for Christians to be carrying Christian literature around in the Roman Empire. Another thing is, a lot of the book is built on Persian records. And the Persians didn't speak a whole lot about Yahweh. So maybe that is the explanation for it. But it's clear that God is involved. Uh, You have this what I think is the key verse in the book of Esther in chapter 4, verse 14, where Mordecai says to Esther, who knows whether you've come to the throne for such a time as this. I think that's an appeal to divine providence. And then uh, prayer is suggested in the fasting of chapter 4, verse 16. A a major religious feast Mm -hmm. of the Jews, Purim, is instituted right here in this book in chapter 9. And uh, many of the people of the land in Persia become proselytes in chapter 8, verse 17. So you've got conversions, institutions of religious feasts. You've got, you've got prayer and fasting, appeals to providence. I, can, I go along with Matthew Henry, the old commentator, who said, If the name of God is not here, his finger is here. So uh, I think that's the way we're going to look at it, and it'll become very clear that God's hand is behind all of these events. Now, the that kind of makes it a very good parallel to life today because God is not overt in our lives. He's not, you know, pointing himself out around every corner and behind every tree. We learn to live in terms of providence more than in terms of just overt action from heaven, divine fiat and all of that. And you see a lot of that in Exodus, you see a lot of that in the book of Genesis, and of course in the Gospels you see that. But that's not the way it was most of the time, not even in biblical times. So I think the book of Esther is a really good book for people to study today, if not for any other reason than that God's name isn't there. And you see how believers act in a world where God is not overt. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think it's uh, very relevant in, in oh, yeah. that sense. Well, let's get into the book, and and I'm going to use the first couple of verses to get a little background information in. Uh, The book begins in the days of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was a Persian king. We've been accustomed to talking about, through the book of Nehemiah, 
Artaxerxes, but Ahasuerus backs up before Artaxerxes, and most people identify this with King Xerxes. Uh, Ahasuerus, by the way, is not a name. It's a title like Tsar or Caesar or Pharaoh. Um, It's used of different kings in Ezra and Daniel. So this was probably the Persian king Xerxes, who reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. and preceded Artaxerxes, the king that you read about in the books of Ezra and mainly Nehemiah. Now, um, we see that he has a massive territory from India to Ethiopia. Esther says over 127 provinces. That doesn't agree with the Greek historian Herodotus who said there were 20 satrapies or provinces. But more than likely, the from the Hebrew point of view or the writer of Esther, uh, a province was much smaller than what Herodotus was talking about. So... I don't think that really creates any kind of problem. Plus, if you <laughs> compare the two, Herodotus to Esther, in terms of believability, Esther's going to win out over that. Oh, yeah. because I'm going to use the think section to talk about some of the things Herodotus wrote, and there's some pretty outlandish things. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm looking forward to talking about those, mm-hmm. not only in this episode, but in some others. He was not a fan of Xerxes, and uh, I think that he does give us some information that colors the character of Xerxes, but I don't know how much we can trust Herodotus, because the Greeks were just about wiped out by the Persians, and so they didn't have anything good to say. They were very biased Mm -hmm. uh, towards the Persians. Is Herodotus the guy that talked about Xerxes with the whips beating the sea? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. I remember that from your class on Esther last year. Yeah, he he yeah. took on the sea. He, yeah. he went out into the sea, according to Herodotus, and and beat it with a whip. And when it did calm down, and I don't know how long afterwards it calmed down, but when it did calm down, that was attributed to Xerxes' whipping that he gave to the sea. Very different from Jesus just saying, peace be still. Mm-hmm. But that tells you, you know, did that happen? I don't know. It sounds pretty outlandish, but... Um, Herodotus, you know, put it in his history. The same history that said there were only 20 provinces in Persia. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It's the difference in looking at counties and states, maybe. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a big deal. Uh, and, of course, we're moving way too slowly through the text here. So let's <laughs> yeah. go to verse 2, which tells us that uh, Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. This is the capital of Persia. Probably the... Um, the most important capital, because there were other capitals in Babylon and and other places. This is modern-day Shush, Iran, and uh, it was built by Darius I. Uh, It's also the city that Nehemiah first appears in when he's serving as cupbearer to the king, so we've seen it before. Now, the book opens with a huge banquet held on behalf of the nobles, Verse 3 says, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That's a long banquet, 180-day banquet. 
Uh, Herodotus believed that there were some political reasons for this banquet, which was explained the length of it, some planning uh, for expansion. But the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to highlight the hubris of Ahasuerus. And so that's the commentary we get on this, that he just wanted to show off his greatness. Now, the next few verses tell us about a banquet that is held for the citizens and the only thing I really want to read from that is verse 8 because it kind of foreshadows a very important plot point. During the banquet, there was a rule made, an edict. There is no compulsion. Meaning uh, the king had given um, orders that uh, they didn't have to drink or drinking was not ordered. And uh, that is a very you know ordinary law. You wouldn't think of that as being a big deal. But this is how the Persians did things. They made edicts. And according to Daniel 6.15, when such an injunction or an edict was made, it could not be revoked, not even by the person who made it, not even by the king himself. Mm-hmm. And that is a very important plot point foreshadowed by that. And I have no doubt that that's why that little um, there is no compulsion to drink law is included because it really doesn't serve any other purpose than to kind of get our get in our mind a people who revolve around laws, however senseless and unnecessary they are, unbreakable mm-hmm. laws. So um, we have that. And then we have an introduction to the queen, Queen Vashti, in chapter 1, verses 10 and following. She's summoned to this feast after the heart of the king was merry with wine, which means he was drunk. Mm-hmm. And uh, he tells his eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown um, or headdress in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, the way this reads literally is bring her to come to bring her before the king wearing only her royal crown. And that's the way the Jewish rabbis interpreted this as well. So there is no doubt what the purpose of Vashti's appearance is about. And you can get that from the context, but to really show you graphically what's going on, he's wanting her to appear naked Mm -hmm. with a crown on. And this is how beautiful my wife is, and so this is how great I am. It's not, you know, really about her, but it's about him. And it's treating a woman as an object, mm-hmm. as, a, as a piece of property, and it, it's very demeaning to women, the behavior of this king. So she, in verse 12, refuses to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And the king becomes enraged and his anger burned within him. So he had to decide what to do, and he calls his advisors together, seven advisors, and that's a neat little detail because in Ezra chapter 7, verse 14, uh, Ahasuerus' son, Artaxerxes, has seven counselors. So it seems to be something that at this time you find in the Persian courts, advisors, princes, counselors, uh, according to the number seven, seven of them that kind of help the king make big decisions. And he's trying to find out how to save face here with this woman who is out of line from his perspective. And four things are said about these men. They were experts in the Persian law and customs. You remember how important those laws were, so they could not be revoked. 
They were men who knew the times, which probably means they were astrologers, or maybe they were familiar with historical precedents, kind of like the Supreme Court would be. Uh, the third thing is that they saw the face of the king, which means he was accessible. And that's another little detail that will come up again, is it was difficult to get um, access to the king. It could be, mm-hmm. if you gained access without his permission, you could be killed. And the fourth thing is they sat first in the kingdom, which meant they were officials of the highest order. So he asked them for advice, and uh, here is their advice in verse 19. They basically tell her, to uh, tell the king that a royal order should go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes. So here is the second time their obsession with this law comes up, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So he takes their advice and he starts this search for, um, for a new queen to take Vashti's place. I'm sure in our application we'll have more to say about Vashti, but I'm going to stop uh, the reading of chapter 1 right there Um, and save some of the other little details for the other parts of our podcast. Mm -hmm. But I do want to say that there probably is a historical gap of four years between chapters 1 and chapter 2. It seems like, you know, during this time, Xerxes took uh, about 200,000 men and a navy of hundreds of ships and launched his massive invasion of Greece in 481 B.C. This may have been what they were planning at the 180-day banquet. And he suffered a humiliating defeat at Salamis in 480 B.C. And uh, near Athens again in 479. And uh, Herodotus tells us that it was after those two humiliating defeats that he fell in love with his niece. And according to Herodotus, when Vashti learned about that, she waited uh, for the king's birthday on which she was traditionally uh, granted one wish, and her wish that she asked for was for the mother of the niece that Xerxes fell in love with, which would have been the wife of Xerxes' brother. He She asked to have this woman mutilated. Now, I should say that Herodotus uses a different name for the queen than Vashti. So it could have been another wife of Xerxes, and it could have been made up. But it's an interesting detail. No other. Her name is Amistris, if you are interested in that. Uh, you know, it, it's a detail we can't prove, but it's interesting to think about all these things having taken place between chapters 1 and 2. There was more between Vashti and Xerxes than just this one incident where she refused to get naked in front of his friends. In addition to that, she may have had the mother of his mistress killed, mutilated, torn limb from limb. And uh, you you see here surfacing an image of a very strong woman, which is a, a quality that you see a lot of in the Bible, and the Bible doesn't get enough credit for that. But you see a woman who is refusing to be treated like an object. Let's get into chapter 2, where we're introduced to Esther, the heroine of the book and we're calling we're calling this episode uh, the heroine of honor the heroine of honor 
Mm-hmm. Thank you. I forgot. But <laughs> this is the heroine that we're being introduced to in chapter 2. And I'm just going to start reading here. There's four things about her that we learn in chapter 2. And the first one is her supervision. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young women who please the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, among the captives carried away with Jeconai, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So for many, many years she had been brought up by, would you call him an uncle, Mordecai? Mordecai? I guess he's a cousin, the daughter of his uncle. Okay, the daughter of his uncle. But he's kind of acting more like an uncle there. He seemed, yeah, because he seems to be, be an older, older person yeah. to have taken over the supervision of, of Esther. But she owes all of her upbringing and her poise and her beauty and uh, sophistication and intelligence to the upbringing that Mordecai gave her. So we're really introduced to two people, the heroine and the hero of the book. And, and really, uh, of the two, it's hard to say who is more important, Mordecai or Esther, she got the title, so she's the one we think of usually, but he plays just as much a major role in the unfolding of the events as does Esther. So after her supervision, we read about her spirit, number two, in verses eight and nine. And I'll just say that, you know, she won the favor with her spirit of the chief eunuch, Hegai, and he did three things for her in return. He provided her with the cosmetics and the portion of food that she needed. And he assigned her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her to the best place in the harem. Which brings us to number three, Esther's secret. This is verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, that is her nationality. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So it was important, probably because of her safety, to keep her identity as a Jew unknown. There must have been some anti-Semitism in Persia, as there has been for a long time all over the world. And uh, remember, this is the Middle East, where that kind of sentiment has been strong for a long, long time. He thought it won't do her any favors to be known as a Jew, so she kept that silent. Again, another very important plot point. Now, the final thing that we see about Esther is her selection. Uh, She is chosen to be the next queen, beginning in verse 12. When the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh, 
and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. And when the turn for Esther, uh, who had the um, daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So she's selected. And, you know, you read the very careful way in which this is written and wonder, what exactly is going on here? Is this what it sounds like? Um... But And I think that it is. Remember mm-hmm. that she is a part of a harem. And we all know what that means. She is a part of a, co- a, a collection of girls that are saved basically as sex slaves is the way that I look at this. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, Persians would look at this uh, trial period as the making of a concubine. So when she went in and spent the night with the king, she came out one of the king's concubines. She was no longer considered one of the virgins, but now she had been moved to a second harem, which contained all the concubines. And from there, she was chosen as queen. And, of course, there's some very seedy, sinful things going on there. Mm -hmm. And because we look at Esther as the heroine, we wonder, you know, How could this be? How could Esther do this? But we're looking at that, I think, from the point of view of people in a free country Mm -hmm. who get to choose who we marry and and who we uh, conduct ourselves with. And this was not Esther's Esther's way of doing things. I I, I basically look at what Ahasuerus is doing to these poor girls as rape. Mm -hmm. It, It may be sophisticated and dressed up and made to look nice and procedural and everything's according to custom but in the end it's rape because she didn't get to choose it's not consensual what if she had done like Vashti and said uh, absolutely not I'm not going to enter this harem or later no I know he selected me but to be honest with you I've been sitting here praying that I would not be chosen now that my turn has come up I'm I would rather sit this one out or I have a headache you know or whatever she said was not going to work because she was either going to go to bed with Ahasuerus or she was going to be killed. And I call that rape. Um, So I I don't really judge Esther for this. And you may, I don't know, uh, you may have a different opinion about what's going on here, but I don't see her just thrilled to death for having been selected in the way that she was selected. She just seems like an object, and we've already seen how Xerxes treats women as pieces of property when Vashti stood up to him, he had her banished. Uh, this is the whole reason why Esther comes into the picture, because of his attitude towards women. It's a it's a sophisticated kind of rape, but it's still rape. It's still wrong. I put all the sin on him 
as she oh, was yeah. just a, a victim in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. But as usual, God is going to be able to use this for something good. I should uh, mention the last little caveat at the end of chapter 2. It doesn't have to do with the two queens, Vashti and Esther, but um, it introduces Mordecai. He's sitting at the king's gate, which is a prominent place, a place of judgment, which means he was a pretty important guy. Even though he was a Jew, he was a very important person, probably making judgments for people on behalf of the courts. And um, he was there giving advice or doing whatever it was that he did as an official. And he learned about a an assassination plot uh, planned against Xerxes, and he reported it, and it wound up in the arrest of the two men who were going to uh, assassinate the king, and it saved the king's life. And a little note at the end of that was that this report that Mordecai made was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Another very important plot point that we will return to in a later episode. Okay, so reading through Esther chapter 2 leaves me with a lot of questions. Really with a lot, I don't want to say a lot to be desired for uh, danger of you know uh, disrespecting the scriptures or anything, but there are some things in here um, that I think are interesting to note. Uh, some issues about morality. And the first one, in chapter 2, uh, we know what's going on. We know what this... It's not a beauty pageant like you learn about when you are in Bible school as a kid. Uh, this is something a lot darker, a lot more, um, I guess, disgusting is the only word I can think of for it, uh, than what you learn about in your Bible classes. You can read verses 12 uh, through 14 of chapter 2 to find out what's really going on um, with this contest. And I think you're right in saying that it's essentially the rape of all these women because that's what it is. Because regardless of whether or not they wanted to do it, they had to do it. But I have a my question is this: Why didn't Esther? And this this all can come to a point. So I'm not just being critical and asking questions to try and you know for some reason harm the story here. But my question is: Why didn't Esther refuse to participate? Um, she could have refused or she could have at least tried um, and she might have you know we don't have um, we don't have anything saying she did not resist per se uh, now she does except that she continued to live yeah yeah and it does I mean it does say she's pleasing she pleases the guy that's in charge of the harem uh, hey guy who's in charge of the women yeah, finds she's cooperating favor. with with the eunuch and the king's wishes because mm-hmm. she's getting all these uh, accolades about you know not only her beauty but her cooperation and winning the favor where was it read that that she she won the favor of of the others and um, you know everybody was really impressed with her which says that she was winning in favor in all the in the eyes of all who saw her verse 15. So yeah. a rebel wouldn't be described that way. Somebody forced into subjection would not be described that way. 
Yeah, and I'll tell you, I'll just tell you how I'd like to think about. It. I'd like to think this is something similar to the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph endured all that wrong due to no fault of his own. And you know, there are some similarities. He ends up being second in command in the entire uh, empire of Egypt at the time. You know, he suffers all this, but God has a plan. God is working behind the scenes, like we're like what is happening here in Esther. Uh, but Esther. If she had made an effort to refuse, she may have been killed, um, or they might have kept her alive and made her do it anyway. So even if she did refuse at first, it's likely that she still, you know, it's likely they said, well, you're going to do this. You know, you're not going to be killed. You're going to do this. So that could have happened. Um, She could have refused just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in Daniel. Now, their options were obey God or die. And they chose to die. And so here with Esther, you know, I realize that's an insanely high standard to place on somebody. Uh, but for a hero of the Bible, um, you know, it seems seems as if if we're reading a story about a hero or a heroine, they're going to choose righteousness before God over, you know, allowing themselves to be a part of this. But she might have refused... Well, and have been forced to be a part no, of it. Nobody says that she did not make a mistake. Mm-hmm. No, nobody, nobody is saying, well, I guess a lot of people are. But I, I'm not saying that she did the absolute best thing in submitting to the demands. Mm-hmm. Um, she did avoid a lot of torture, mutilation, yeah. violence by what doing do mean, it. If you put caged, us in that situation, it. you know, I mean, I don't want to... That's what I'm saying. That's a really yeah. lofty standard to put on. Right. But and I mean, if every time in the Bible a character was faced with something like this and they were they were like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it would be fictional. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just wouldn't... It would smack of contrivance. You know, you yeah. would think this... Mm, this sounds like some, you know, piece of Christian fiction where everybody's perfect and yeah. you know, everything works out nice and neat in the end. And this is a big, ugly world we're reading about here, which speaks yeah. to the reality of the situation. But God still used that fear of Esther mm-hmm. to his purposes. In fact, without her fear... He wouldn't have saved his people the way that he saves them in the story. Now, I believe he would have saved them some other way, but he probably would have had to use some other imperfect person. Yeah, and that's that's another point I was going to make. You know, regardless of whether or not, and I've got, you know, Mordecai. I think Mordecai makes some mistakes here too. Certainly by not, you know, we don't have it mentioned here whether or not he tries to hide her or whether or not he tries to do something to keep her from being taken by the king's guard, uh, which I'm assuming is going to be who takes these women, because um, certainly they're, I'd like to think most of their parents wouldn't want them to go. Maybe some did, so they have the chance of being queen. I'd like to think Mordecai here is more noble, wanted to keep her safe from that, but he, it, there's just no mention of whether or not he did. But regardless, now bring this up, uh, I guess just for the sake of uh God uses, regardless of whether or not Esther and Mordecai here have sinned uh, or have had inaction where there should have been action, um, I think it's very, 
I think it's wise to note here that God uses imperfect people and imperfect events to get his um, purposes accomplished all the time. Uh, you can see he used Paul, and we all know about Paul's past. He used Rahab. He even used Pilate and Judas, all to get his purposes accomplished. What about, I? you know, one example I thought of was the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1. That seems like a very close parallel here where a pagan king tells them, do that. Well, actually, it's the opposite because they disobey the pagan king. Mm-hmm. But they wind up lying in order to do so. They're supposed to yeah. throw the Hebrew boys into the Nile River, and they lie to the king and tell him, you know, the Hebrew women are, um, they have great stamina, and they deliver yeah. before we arrive. And they tell a half-truth or maybe a, just a total lie, kind of like Rahab. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, how in the world is God commending them for lying? No, He's commending them for believing in Him and siding with His people, although they did it in an imperfect way. No. I, th- I also think another little thing here to remember is that there is a difference between Old Covenant behavior and New Covenant behavior. There's a difference in the expectations of Old Covenant people and New Covenant people who live in the, the light of Christ. Uh, you know, I think about Jesus' comments on divorce in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees said, well, Moses uh, uh, permitted people to issue a certificate of divorce. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, well, he, he did that because of the hardness of men's hearts. And if you're not looking at a case of hard heart here with Xerxes, I don't know oh, yeah. one that you could find. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that there was some leniency shown towards Esther because of the hardness of men's hearts and the the world in which she lived that probably wouldn't be issued today where we live behind those apostles who stood before the Sanhedrin and said, we must obey God rather than men. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that's kind of a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego attitude yeah. that God has put his stamp of approval on. Another thing is there's a fine line here that I see, and I was trying to work this out, and I, I just about had it all worked out till you mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I was going to take this approach, and that Esther is just falling in line with Daniel and others, other believers in God, who submitted to pagan rulers because they were going to go ahead and let God take care of everything. Nehemiah. And they believed Nehemiah also. Mm-hmm. They believed that, you know, this was who God wanted in charge. God is sovereign. He put this man in place. And when he gets done with him, he'll put somebody else in place. And my role is to live within the laws of the land Mm -hmm. and do what is right within those laws. So, uh, you know, David, uh, David, Daniel, when he was in Nebuchadnezzar's court, was called upon to interpret a dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. And the interpretation of the dream was really bad for Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, Daniel starts his interpretation saying, I wish this dream was about your enemies and not you. Mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar was a horrible person. He was bad to Daniel. He, he, he had locked Daniel up. But Daniel starts out with that, Oh, may this be for your enemies instead of you. And, you know, I kind of likened... Mordecai and Esther's behavior here towards Xerxes put that in the same category. 
But I don't know that it is now that you bring up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are contemporaries with Daniel. When when Nebuchadnezzar crossed the line, they didn't obey him. Yeah. It was okay for Daniel to say, oh, "I wish, you know, I wish this wasn't you." Yeah, that's not a sin. But to bow down to a false image, that's a sin. Yeah, and Daniel does the same thing. He draws the line at, "I'm not oh, going to yeah. pray to the king," and then he gets thrown in the lion's den for it. And it, God delivers both of them. Mm-hmm. You know, the Shadrach. But he's always respectful goes, so. to the king. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's he, just so the respect is there, and, and maybe the maybe the Lord looked at that night that Esther spent with the king as sinful and disgraceful. I'm, I'm sure that he did, but it'd be hard. Or maybe to, even was disappointed in Esther. Yeah, and it's but out at the of same her time, control. he used her in her imperfections the way that he yeah. used Rahab the harlot and the in the midwives for the Hebrew women. And many, many others, he was able to use them in this time before Christ when everything wasn't just spelled out for people. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like I'm trying to make Esther out to be a bad guy or anything. Or a bad girl. Yeah. Or she, was, she wasn't yeah. a guy. I'm trying to trying to make sure I'm not trying to put that light on her. It's just, I, you know, I think we can use the point that God is using imperfect events at least because I'm more... I'm just more inclined to go to bat for Esther and say this isn't her fault. It happens to her. She could have tried to say no. They could have said you're going to do it anyway. Um, I, I, I guess we don't really have time. Um, but it is interesting to note one other thing really quick. Um, if you remember from Ezra chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 13, one of the big problems that Jewish people have been facing all the way back from Solomon is intermarriage with other nations. And we've already covered some, we've spent some time on this saying it's not racism, it is. The the issue here is going after other gods, because that's what Solomon did. And it's interesting that another command is broken here, that Ezra, or Esther marries the king. Uh, if you read in Nehemiah 13, 23, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor your sons to their daughters. So this is a command that stands for women and men not to marry people from other nations. And she marries the king. Now, again, it's just interesting I to just, know. I think this is a lot different case, though, mm-hmm. because that is what that only they only start that Ezra and Nehemiah both in the land of Jerusalem under the laws of Moses, mm-hmm. and they're living under Persian law, and you know it's not the Israelite nation national the um, Israel's national identity that is being protected here, but rather Persia's national identity no. that we're reading from the book of Esther. Um, in other words, Ezra and Nehemiah are set in Judea, and Esther is set in Persia, which makes these two very different settings. And this is before Ezra, because this comes right after Zerubbabel, It is right? before Ezra, yeah. So this could have been before Ezra... Uh, before Ezra gives his speech to them, talking about intermarriage and makes them change, yeah. So maybe this is something that was, you know, not restored at this time, because yeah. when Ezra comes back and reads the law, um, you know, the date on this is 479 BC. I should have said this at the beginning. 479 BC. Ezra came to Jerusalem in 457 BC. 
Okay. So that part of the law had not even been reestablished, restored in Jerusalem. Okay. And um, and, and the whole reason for it, it wasn't racism. It was to protect the national identity of the people of God. Mm Mm-hmm. And to keep idolatry out of the land of Jerusalem and Judea. And that's not a concern in Persia. Yeah. So, I, you know, there is a lot to play with here in terms of, you know, it sounds like we're talking situation ethics. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe in situation ethics. I think there's one thing that is right for yeah. everybody universally. Mm-hmm. But this is a very complicated situation. Yeah. Esther, and let's not forget she's probably a teenager. Oh, we're not yeah. telling how young this girl is. Mm-hmm. We say girl. We're not, you know, we're not the kind of guys that call all women girls. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a girl, and it's yeah. a very difficult thing for her to juggle. Rewind the tape a little bit here and go back to chapter 1 and this example of Vashti because for our apply section, which is what we always do in the third part of the podcast, she provides the clearest lesson uh, that we can take home practically with us. And this is a lesson that's taught a lot in Bible school to young girls. And I think there's good reason for it. However, there are a number of theories about why Vashti refused the king's edict to to present herself in this lustful manner before him and his friends. So I'll share these with you, and and the last one will be the the application that most people usually make using Vashti. Uh, The first is the dutiful theory. Um, And this comes from Josephus, the Jewish historian, He said that, in his commentary on this, he said that she, out of regard to the laws of the Persians, which forbid the wives to be seen by strangers, did not go to the king. Evidently, the Persians had a law in the books that the king's wife was not to be observed by strangers. I kind of skipped over it in the reading, but there was a feast for the nobles, but then um, in chapter 1, after the Feast of the Nobles is mentioned, there is a second feast for just about everybody else, um, all the people present in Susa, verse 5. I would imagine there would be a lot of strangers oh, yeah. present, and if Persia had a law against the queen of, you know, being seen by strangers, especially wearing only her crown, maybe yeah. she was just being dutiful to the law, and Ahasuerus was doing something illegal. Uh, the second theory is the inebriation theory. Uh, A lot of contemporary scholars suggest that she was fortified by wine in making this. I I think uh, the refusal might have been fortified by wine because it seems like just about everybody in this chapter was fortified by wine. I think Xerxes' actions were motivated by wine. I think his advisors were motivated by wine. We're talking about a 180-day feast, folks, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of drinking going on. I like that phrase. Fortified by wine. Yeah, yeah, that's probably maybe part of it and maybe, you know, emboldened her a little bit. 
The bitter wife theory is one that's self-explanatory. Um, you know, um, Herodotus uh, had this view of her in his histories. He didn't tell this story, but he told another story about her having uh, her husband's mistress's mother mutilated. But according to Herodotus, that happened after the banquet, not before the banquet. Still, I think there was a lot of stuff going on between Vashti and Xerxes that are unwritten in the book of the book of uh, Esther. Number four is the morning sickness theory. Um, some people calculate that she would have been pregnant with Artaxerxes by this time, and uh, was maybe embarrassed by the way that her body looked. The Persians evidently put a lot of stock in what they believe to be a good-looking feminine figure, because I think twice in our reading today, chapters one and two. There is a comment made about Vashti's excellent figure and Esther's excellent figure. And maybe she was feeling sick. Maybe she was looking pregnant. And she didn't want to be used in that way. But my favorite theory, and the one I'd like to believe, and the one I I do believe is the moral outrage theory. That Vashti is an example of modesty. That she didn't want to be objectified in this way. What Xerxes was asking of her was crass, vulgar, abusive. Um, Who wouldn't be humiliated in a situation like this except somebody with very low moral standards? And so I, I think probably the truth is utilizing all of these, not just one. But we could highlight the moral outrage theory and put her up as a model for girls today not to be treated as women whose beauty is only skin deep. And that's, you know, our society talks a lot about, you know, how we've moved on past the old values and feminism has changed us to where we respect women and make them equals. But all you have to do is go down the grocery grocery store aisle Mm -hmm. and uh, look at the magazines. You can see really quickly that women are still objectified. Yeah. Uh, And, you know... I've read a lot about how they airbrush those cover photos and put unrealistic photos of women on these pages. And they do all kinds of things to them, uh, to their appearance, before they are presented in movies or on magazine covers that give girls the impression that they have to look like that in order to be beautiful. And I'm telling you, it's messing a lot of girls up. And thankfully, there are some other voices out there uh, who are speaking in favor of inner beauty, inner qualities, character, intelligence as being more important than one person's idea of what is beautiful. And uh, I'm glad for those that minority of voices that are out there speaking on that. There need to be a lot more. Um, besides all that, even if you do have physical beauty, um, you shouldn't you, you don't need to be winning points with that. Yeah. That that's great to have, but that shouldn't be all there is about you. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, being physically beautiful is a disadvantage because it weakens, it atrophies your other qualities because you lean on it too much. You're very familiar with that, aren't you? You yes. struggle with that a lot. I, I do, I do. <laughs> I've had to uh, accentuate the inner qualities because of my... Handicap in my physical appearance. Thanks. No, I was, for that. I was complimenting you. I was saying you're familiar with the dangers of good looks. That's oh, yeah, sure. It sounded like a compliment. I to me. really was trying to compliment you. 
Great. Nobody's going to go back and listen to this like I'm being a jerk. No, no. I was trying to help. I, I'll take it in the best possible way I can. <laughs> um, so I think Vashti is a great example for young girls. There's certainly nothing in the text that would suggest that she did anything wrong. I mean, there's basically a simple refusal. Mm-hmm. There's more to it um, later on. You know, they, they, all these men are talking about the queen's behavior and how she will be an example to other women. And this is what the, um, the, the, the king's advisors were all worried about. Uh, verse 17 said, The queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. She was evidently very influential and liked among the Persians, and uh, they knew that. And so, in addition to her beauty, in addition to her modesty, there's this likability factor or you know reputation mm-hmm. that she had among women that made her very influential. Yeah. Um, let's talk about modesty a little bit because I think sometimes we think it's just about hemlines and necklines and you know the tightness of the clothes or whatever it's about that but it's it's about drawing attention to yourself physically that's what yeah. it's about so if you have some vulgar expression on a t-shirt that could be regarded as immodest yeah uh, some outlandish hairdo people ask about tattoos you know what what's wrong with the tattoo well you know, is your tattoo immodest? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Does it draw attention to you as just a physical being? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a question to ask. We're talking about tattoo or piercings or whatever. Yeah. Immodesty comes in more forms than just, you know, revealing flesh. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think it has to do with the way you carry yourself in general as well. I think a, a great deal of modesty is about, um, you know, the physical appearance, especially, uh, you know, for for girls. And I, you know, I know that there are that men need to be modest as well. Um, I certainly would never say that all of the responsibility falls on a woman to be modest, but you know, uh, just some of the differences differences that are present. Certainly, that's what we talk about when we talk about modesty. Is women, what kind of clothes are you wearing? That's what we talk about. Generally, when we speak of modesty, but I think modesty, if we want to look at it for what it really is, and it's, I think, I think the aspect of physical and clothing is a part of modesty, but the whole picture of modesty is, I think, what you're alluding to here is being careful against drawing all this attention to yourself and saying, "Look at me and look how great and wonderful I am," and it reminds me of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and certainly we don't think of immodesty when we read about the scribes and the Pharisees who when they give, uh, Jesus says to them, beware of um, when you give to the needy, don't be like the Pharisees and the hypocrites who stand, uh, who sound a trumpet before them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. Mm-hmm. See, the problem is not that the problem is not the actual, I guess, the act in and of itself of blowing a trumpet is not evil. 
The problem here was it's immodest to blow that trumpet because they are seeking for their own glory. They want to be praised by others. Now, ladies, when they wear a really low-cut shirt or something, why are they wearing that? And they can say, well, I just think it's cute. Well, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't show you know, that much that's cute as well. And I think that all comes back to the way they want to be viewed by others. They yeah. want other people to praise their physical appearance. But we can do the same thing with our spiritual appearance as well. I think we need to be aware of that because if that's what we're after, you're, it's easy to get. It is easy to get um, respect from other folks in this sort of way. Definitely physically, it's really easy to get. All you gotta do is, uh, all you gotta do is work out and diet, make your body, um, you know, that which attracts the opposite sex, and then wear something that shows most of it. It's not that hard. And also with uh, some, some don't even bother with the working out part. Yeah, they just show you what they got. Yeah, and um, and then with the with regards to spiritual modesty, think about these people. Um, they do. It's easy to have someone sound a trumpet before you and say, "Hey, I'm about to drop my money in the coffers here." But and look what Jesus says to them. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So if that's what you're after, that's what you're going to get. The problem is, that's all you're going to get. Because uh, if you keep reading on, what Jesus is implying is, they've gotten their reward, they're not getting anything else. But I say to you, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the comparison here is, if you're seeking for the approval of other people, which I think modesty that's what it comes back to. Are you seeking for yourself? Are you wanting yourself to be glorified? Well, if so, great, fantastic. That's going to happen. You know, people are going to glorify you, but that's all. That satisfaction you feel from that is all you're going to get. Well, you don't have any reward from. You know, the question is, what do you want to be known for? Yeah. Do do you you know Peter told Christian wives in First Peter chapter three, be known for your inner qualities, your inner beauty, which is precious in the sight of God. Do you want to be known for your clothes and your body and your hair and your makeup? Or do you want to be known for something deeper than that? You know, let let there be a little mystery to you also. Because there's nothing, and we're talking to girls because this, I mean, this issue is stronger with women than men. Not mm-hmm. Like you said, I agree that men need to be modest as well. But it's a bigger problem for girls than men right now and this time in our culture. Girls, there's there's something very attractive about mystery. And when a when a woman is out there and there's nothing to be you know imagined, you know it's just a, everything is out there. That's attractive in a sense, but not in the way that you want to be attractive. Yeah, it's it's attractive in a very dirty, vulgar way. That leaves no mystery. There's nothing else to learn about this woman. We've yeah. seen it all. That's it. That's all there is. And, uh, you know, that doesn't last very long. Marriage is not physical. Marriage is spiritual. Mm -hmm. Relationships are not physical. Relationships are spiritual. And we're thankful about that because the outer self wastes away. The inner self is renewed day by day. So another thing, another angle on this uh, making beauty only skin deep is how long can you keep that up? I mean, yeah. 
You can look at all the old uh, cat ladies out there who've had this horrible <laughs> plastic surgery on their faces. Yeah. Where their lips look like they've been punched and their cheeks are stretched up and their eyes look feline. and You yeah. know, it's really sad because they just refuse to accept the aging that is happening to their bodies. It's It, it happens. It's going to happen. Mm. There's not a thing in the world that you can do about it uh, except make yourself look like an alien, which yeah. doesn't make yourself look more attractive. Um, the last thing I want to say about it is, uh, you know, another thing about the modesty is you have a responsibility towards the the way other people react to your appearance. And a lot of girls will make an excuse. I can wear this bikini or I can wear this, you know, skimpy outfit because if the boys stumble because of that, that's their fault for looking at me. They need they don't need to have their minds in the gutter. But that wasn't the Lord's idea about things. In Luke chapter 17, verse 1, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now he says the little ones sin, so they're in trouble, but woe to the one through whom the temptations to sin come. That would be the temptress. That would be the person who didn't dress up. That would be Vashti if she had come out on that stage. Yeah, and I I agree with that 100%. I actually used that... uh, in a class with our teenage boys about dating, because uh, I was talking to them about purity mm-hmm. and the importance of making sure that they were concerned about the purity of, you know, when they get a little bit older, uh, what girls they do date, you know, and how they handle themselves when, if, when, and if they get some alone time with their special friends, uh, you know, whoever they may be. Um, I was careful to point out, or I, I think it's a big deal to point out to them, and I think it gives you a lot of responsibility as a young man, certainly growing into manhood, of if you are responsible for tempting this person to do something you know is wrong, then this is what Scripture teaches on it. You know, you are not putting yourself in good standing with God when you are tempting someone else to fall short of the glory of God and especially for your own selfish reasons. I mean, and you, you know, there might not be any um, loaded sort of motivation behind a girl wanting to wear a bikini other than she wants, you know, she doesn't want to, you know, be that girl that's, you know, whatever. And then society looks at her like she's crazy because she won't wear a bikini and everybody else will. Um, that's probably what's behind it is just that sort of feelings. Um, but at the same time... I don't think so. If you wear them, if you wear them, and you go out in a public place like that, and guys do look, they do look, and I know I hear all the time when this gets brought up, girls say, "Oh, nobody really notices. It's just, you know, it's our culture." They are designed to make men look, and that's the only purpose they serve. And it's not the best swimwear in the world. No, it can't be. No. And I mean, Maybe. guys, there's do all kinds look. of room for um, problems that can occur <laughs> in a in a bikini. It's, yeah. it's, it's designed to cause lust. Yeah, it's a lust machine. And That's it, what a bikini is, and it does. I mean, because especially when you're going to a public place, I yeah. mean, are all and and we say, you know, if a guy lusts, it's not my problem; it's his. And most of the time, we're talking about. They're, they're expecting a standard of a Christian man to be able to see you 
in basically your underwear. Actually, most of the time, it's probably less material than your underwear. You're expecting a Christian man for you to be able to just hold yourself out there in front of him, you know, and show him what you have and expect him to be mature enough and spiritually capable enough to not let his mind wander. And why are you doing that? Yeah, but what about the guys that aren't Christian men? Because a Christian man is going to struggle with that big time. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not going to, I mean, if you're out. Why would you do that to a guy? That's what I'm saying. Uh, it doesn't Why make would you any do that sense. to any man if you're a Christian woman? It doesn't and, make sense. And how could you read First Peter three and put a bikini on? It's just, it's crazy. So we're thankful to Vashti for her example as it's been yeah. preserved. And there's that, a lot of other things that we want to say, but we're. Yeah. we're I will say it reminds me of your question. You got a question and answers that one night. It said, "Is there such a thing as a modest bikini?" And you just said, "No." Next yeah, question. I mean, <laughs> I love I, that. If anybody argues there is. I, they, I mean, I don't even know how to respond to them yeah. on that question. So, well, we, thank you for joining us on the sixty-six. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we have a, feeder, a Twitter feed out there, um, the sixty-six podcast. You can email Andrew at a Kingsley at arcoc.com. You can email me at dkaiser at arcoc.com. Our music comes from Danny Ray Martin Quintet. And uh, we are so glad that you joined us on this first episode of Esther. Join us for the second episode. we got three more to go on this good book. Goodbye.